Good morning. Uh, my name is Chuck Armstrong, and uh, this is, I think, maybe my third time out here at Grace Church, and it's always a pleasure when Mark uh, invites me out here. And thank you, as always, for the very uh, warm welcome and hospitality that I always receive. Uh, my wife, Celine, is here uh, with me this morning. Uh, this morning's text comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 24. It's in, printed in your bulletin, and it's on page 246 in your Bibles in the pew. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. 
And when I started going through this passage and reflecting on it, I couldn't help coming back to a certain word. Uh, and that word is printed in your bulletin, and it's unvengeance. And if that sounds kind of funny to you, you're not alone. Uh, unvengeance isn't actually a word. But as I started thinking about this and thinking of the opposite of vengeance, I did a quick look through a dictionary and a thesaurus. And if you're a linguistics expert, then I apologize for the surf surface level research. But when you look up the word vengeance, you get tons of synonyms. Revenge, retribution, retaliation, payback. One thesaurus even gave the word satisfaction as a synonym for the word vengeance. And when you look up the antonym for vengeance, that is the opposite of vengeance, you generally find one common word, and that's forgiveness. I think that speaks a lot about our society. We have several words for payback, and we really only have one word that goes against it. And this is something Christians and non-Christians alike battle with. The abundance of words for revenge is no accident. We all love the idea of revenge, or if you want to play it a little safer, the idea of settling the score. If someone wrongs you, the least that you want to see happen is some type of retribution. This isn't unique to Christians. This is a human thing. We desire, as that one, one thesaurus puts it, satisfaction for someone doing us wrong. Now, the danger we all face, of course, is that instant gratification that we, we hope to receive once we experience vengeance. The late journalist Hunter S. Thompson once wrote about his own lust for vengeance and how, as he fed it, he was hooked. He considered vengeance something like a drug, something that dug its claws in deeper and deeper into his life the more he indulged in it. A completely different type of writer, C.S. Lewis, also discussed vengeance. He once said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. So here you have two writers who really couldn't be any more different. Hunter S. Thompson was a man who wrote with vulgarity. He glorified drug use, and he took his own life at the age of 67. And then you have C.S. Lewis, a man Christians love to hold up as one of the 20th century's great defenders of faith. And he's also a man who is probably being referenced in hundreds of churches across the country right now. And yet, no matter how different these two men are, they both write with similar perspectives when it comes to vengeance, because it really isn't a Christian or a non-Christian thing. It's a human struggle. Now, if this sounds like a hopeless message, this is where we as Christians can actually seek to find rest in God's Word. It's not easy, but we have an amazing example of what unvengeance can actually look like in this particular passage. If you're here this morning and you're not quite sure what you believe, it's my hope that you might catch a glimpse of this power of forgiveness, first in David's life, and then, as we'll see, in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is important for all of us, really no matter where you are at in your own faith, because I heard a pastor once describe it this way, this provides us with an alternative to the kind of lifestyle that seeks out vengeance, and we desperately need an alternative. So to get there, let's walk through a few points this morning. First, we'll unpack the desire for vengeance. And second, we'll go through vengeance in our own lives. I'll call it the pride of vengeance. And third, we'll hopefully discover the hope in unvengeance. So one, the desire for vengeance. Then we'll talk about the pride of vengeance in our own lives. And finally, we will wrap up with a hope in unvengeance. So first, looking at this desire for vengeance... This idea, this desire, we can clearly see it in 1 Samuel 24, but to fully understand the desire that's at play, we need a little context. So before this chapter, 
Saul has been seeking out David. And this isn't the good kind of seeking. He's not trying to catch up with him and, and see how he's doing. Saul is the king of Israel, and yet he's fallen out of favor with God due to his lack of obedience. Meanwhile, throughout all that, David has been anointed as the true king. And this, of course, doesn't sit well with Saul. Saul is jealous. Saul is jealous. He turns paranoid, and he becomes murderous. He's already tried to kill David, and this isn't a secret. David knows that he is anointed by God, and he also knows that Saul wants to kill him. And this is a struggle for David. David has done so much for Saul, following him as the king of Israel. Think about it. We may not know much about David's life or Saul's life, but likely we all know the story of David and Goliath. David killed Goliath for Saul. He has served him. And now what? Saul is chasing him to end his life. Saul forces David to flee. This entire thing turns into a seemingly never-ending battle, and David is constantly on the run. So we get to chapter 24 in 1 Samuel this morning, and where David is at in Gedi, there are tons of these huge caves near the Dead Sea. And for his part, David actually feels pretty safe. Now he's got the protection of a cave in the midst of several other caves. And so now he can hide out and contemplate and consider his next steps as he continues running from Saul. On one hand, you could actually look at this particular situation, David finding the protection in caves from a madman who is chasing him to kill him, as God providing protection. God is protecting his true anointed one. But the story doesn't end there, and actually, as we see in the bulk of verses this morning, that's really just the beginning. Realistically, the story turns into a bit of a comedy. Here's the bad guy, Saul, the guy who wants to kill David, and he has to go to the bathroom. And in all of the caves by the Dead Sea, he just so happens to choose the one that David and his men are hiding in. And here David is confronted face to face with that desire for vengeance. He has the chance of a lifetime, not only to save himself, but basically get rid of someone who, you know, he doesn't think should be on this earth, who's chasing him. I think of Bob Dylan's great song, Positively Fourth Street. It was released in the mid-60s, and some of you may may know it, and I would never be so bold as to try to decipher exactly what Dylan sings in his songs, but I do think in this song he is talking about something that I would consider vengeance, and this desire for some type of payback, something that is sort of rooted in a frustrated jealousy. In one verse he says, and I won't sing it for you, he says, I wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes, and just for that one moment I could be you. Yes, I wish that for just one time you could stand inside my shoes. I think Dylan is singing about this desire. And so in this passage, not only is David confronted with the desire, and he's likely thinking, Saul, I wish you could just spend a day in my shoes and see how crazy this vendetta has become. Not only is David confronted with that, but he's also face to face with the fact that his men are confronted with this desire for vengeance as well. In verse 4, his men say, this is it. God has put Saul in your path, and you can deal with him as you wish. David's personal desire is all of a sudden amplified with what is essentially peer pressure from his men. Now let's quickly take a step back. <clears throat> Does any of this feel familiar? First off, when we hear of Saul and his jealousy for David, we can likely see ourselves in him. I know I certainly can. It might not mean that I want to kill anybody or chase anybody across the country, 
But if I feel that I'm entitled to something, that I've worked hard for something, that I've earned it, and someone else is poised to reap the rewards, it's hard not to feel this sort of envy that Saul feels. If not Saul, you might be able to find yourself in that of David's men. These guys have been following David and supporting him throughout this entire ordeal. They know what David has done for Saul, and they know what Saul has been trying to do to David. And here they are, they see that their leader, their friend, has been presented with an unbelievable opportunity to turn the tables, to enact revenge on someone who, as far as they're concerned, deserves it. Think of that C.S. Lewis quote, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. That is, until they're presented with this desire, this opportunity for vengeance. As I think about vengeance and the desire to pursue it, I not only think of Bob Dylan, but I also think of one of the greatest stories of all time, and you may maybe have heard about it, it's Batman. I think it's just a great story. I think it's one of the most important tales of our time. And the entire story of Batman is built around this one man's desire for vengeance. Bruce Wayne witnesses the murder of his mother and father in an alleyway in Gotham City at a very young age. And from that day forward, throughout his teens, throughout his adulthood, his number one priority is finding out who pulled the trigger. And he wants to enact revenge on them. Now on the surface, this desire, this revenge, turns Bruce Wayne into a superhero. It turns him into Batman. And because of his desire, he's able to rid the city of villain after villain. But on a much deeper level, that desire that burns inside of Batman, it gets darker and darker. And it's tougher and tougher for him to find any happiness in his life. Whether that's happiness with friends, with a significant other, or with some type of community. He's always lonely. And he's incredibly skeptical about any type of good that might exist in this world. All because of this desire to seek revenge on the man who killed his parents. It started at a young age, and it dug its claws in, into his life deeper and deeper. His vengeful desire dictates every single decision that he makes. Now, if Batman was in the cave, and his parents' killer came in to do his business, I think it's safe to say that he would have ended things without thinking twice, especially if he was surrounded by supporters, people who were urging him to do it. So what makes David different than Batman? David is able to battle his desire because of his obedience to God, because he has a heart for the Lord. One theologian puts it this way. He says, David killed his own anger in himself instead of killing Saul. Saul deserved death, and instead David gives him another chance at life. After being pressured by his men, David does go to Saul, so that desire is obviously there. But instead of killing him, he cuts off a corner of his robe. And immediately after doing this, we're told David feels guilty, and he repents. He tells his men, the same men who were pressuring him to kill Saul, that the Lord forbade him to do anything like this to Saul, including cutting off a piece of his clothing. Now, while you or I might hear that and think, eh, it's just a corner of his robe, what's the big deal? In the time of David and Saul, clothing was a huge deal. We see this type of imagery throughout the Bible, and you've probably heard when men are in great distress, they'll rip their robes. It's a big deal to deface your clothing. And an even bigger deal for another man to deface someone else's clothing. And as we see in this story, Saul is not just any man. He's the king of Israel. And David defaces his robe. So that is a significant issue and one that David seems to quickly regret. 
So now David's desire for vengeance has led to a slight version of payback, the cutting of Saul's robe, and it has turned into guilt. Think of that instant gratification that comes with payback. David had it, and it didn't take long for it to turn into guilt. But what does he do? When Saul leaves the cave, David calls out to him and bows down to him and admits what he did. He first implores Saul to realize that he is not out to get him, and then lets him know that he had the easy opportunity to kill him, but he didn't. To prove his mercy, he shows Saul the piece of his robe, which had to have floored Saul. And in fact, we know it did. In verse 16, we're told that Saul wept, followed by a declaration that David is more righteous than him. And he finds himself repenting as well. He admits that he has repaid David's good with evil. As the king of Israel, Saul says, May the Lord reward you, David, with good for what you have done. David's desire for vengeance, it was real. And as far as he and his men were concerned, it seemed justified. And he was pressured to give into it by those around him. And for us, this desire can turn into something that resembles pride. And that's our second point this morning. So first we looked at the desire for vengeance in the story, David's desire for vengeance, and now we can look at the pride of vengeance in our own lives. When I first moved to New York City, I worked for a major news talk radio station, and because of my job, I listened to the station all day at the office, and oftentimes in the mornings, in the evenings, in the weekends, and at first this was great. I consumed as much as I could every second that I had, and I quickly became very, very familiar with the ins and outs of the station. As you might imagine, though, uh, as you might imagine what happened if you were listening to talk radio that much, I kind of burned myself out. I went from a wannabe political junkie to a guy who could barely listen to 15 minutes of anything remotely related to politics. A big part of this was the pride of vengeance that I found to be instilled in politics. Now, regardless of what side of the aisle you might fall on, there always seems to be this sort of hope that the other side will fail. And I would say even worse than that, there is this disappointment when the other side doesn't fail. Even though I'm not nearly as ingrained in the political world as I once was, I still see it every day, especially on social media. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, you likely see it too. Thanks to the election season we just came out of and the 24-hour news cycle that we constantly live in, this pride runs rampant. And it often seems to be affiliated with the hope of payback or retribution for the other guy. When I first started thinking about this sermon, I did another quick bit of research. And again, this term, research, is a bit loose. This time, I googled the words politics and revenge together. And in less than a second, I was presented with 18.5 million results. Then I googled the words politics and forgiveness together, and I had about 7.5 million results, less than half. Now, that is by no means a black-and-white indictment. But very much like my quick flip-through of the dictionary and the, 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 the thesaurus, I think this is somewhat representative of the society we are in. Not only is it okay to have a desire for vengeance, but we should be proud of it. David's men definitely had a bit of pride when it came to pushing him to give in to his desire for vengeance. They're calling on God's providence. This is it. This is the day that the Lord said would happen, and here is your enemy ready for you to kill they must have felt very proud to say this. Not only are they urging their leader to kill the man who has been hunting all of them, but they're also calling upon God for justification. They're also taking joy in Saul's slip-up, the fact that Saul has unwittingly stepped into his own demise. He picked the one cave where he could lose it all. 
We can also look at the pride of vengeance from a slightly different angle in this story, and that is when we seek out vengeance, we hope that we can reclaim our own self, our own pride, our own identity. Consider Saul in this entire story. His pride is consistently hurt. He's the king of Israel, yet he has to face the reality that David will be the true king. So what does he do to rediscover his pride? He seeks vengeance. In the New York Times a couple of years ago, Kate Murphy wrote an article called The Futility of Vengeance. And in it she says, The most vengeful responses from individuals tend to be provoked when honor or identity is threatened, such as being spurned by a lover or having one's family or religion maligned. Saul's identity has been threatened, and he seeks out a vengeful response to try and rebuild his honor. Now, when you consider the opposite of pride, you're given a couple of words that we all know a bit about, humility and modesty. Pride and humility are found throughout Scripture. But to me, I gravitate to what James writes. Near the beginning of James chapter 4 in the New Testament, he writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And just a few verses later, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I think it's safe to say that when we seek out vengeance, when we find pride in that desire for retribution, or we hope to reclaim our identity through vengeance, that we're acting without humility. And if we look to God's word for rest and guidance, we actually find the refuge we're looking for, not in any type of payback or revenge, but in humility, in grace, or you might say, in unvengeance. Now at this point, hopefully we're all becoming aware of how hard and yet how realistic this is in our own lives. For some of us, we're just like Saul. We get this desire to reclaim our identity and our pride and our honor. And because of that, we unjustly pursue others around us. For others, we might be thinking how much we're not like David. That when we're presented with a chance to get even with an enemy, we oftentimes desire to take it rather than show mercy. Now whether we're just like Saul or not like David, where do we find that grace in our own failures and the strength to show mercy to those who may have wronged us? No matter who you are, we need an alternative to this vengeful lifestyle. We need help, and we need hope. And that's the third and final point this morning, finding hope in unvengeance. We looked at the desire for vengeance and the pride of vengeance, but like I said at the beginning, this is not a message without hope. And we can find that hope in the unvengeance we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Consider the things that Jesus endured during his life. The very first is the fact that he became man, that he became human. Here is Christ who has existed for all of eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, who has existed before creation, and he humbles himself to the point of becoming a man who walks the earth with sinners. In Philippians, Paul writes that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That's the ESV translation. He emptied himself. And the original Greek that Paul wrote in, he wasn't using that word as a metaphor. He was actually saying, Jesus emptied himself out. Now, if this was anyone else, and you gave up everything you had to the point that people looked at you and said that you emptied yourself out, and you did this for other people, people who you knew wronged you, it would be hard to not be filled with a vengeful desire from the second you took your first breath. And yet, instead of that, Christ lived a life for those people who wronged him, for sinners, and he was wronged up until his very last breath. 
The same people he came to save were the ones who persecuted him, mocked him, and hung him on the cross to die. But even when he was nearing his last breaths, Christ's life was one that was full of unvengeance. Hanging on the cross, Jesus is looking out at those who have done so much to him, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That level of unvengeance, that level of humility, that level of grace and forgiveness, it wasn't something that Christ only embodied during his time on earth or in his death as he hung on the cross, but it's something that is freely offered to sinners through his resurrection. We fall short of the glory of God on a daily basis, and yet Christ looks to his Father and says, forgive them. He doesn't say, Father, we need vengeance. We need payback. I gave my life for these people, and here they stand, broken and sinful. No, he says the exact opposite. What Jesus died for was a forgiveness of sins, so that his righteousness, that is, his goodness, might be granted to us. And he prayed for this forgiveness as soon as he was put on the cross, and that grace continues to be poured down on his people. The great theologian Augustine once wrote, and this is a a bit of a long paragraph, but I think it's worth it to hear it all. Augustine wrote, Jesus prayed as man, and as God with the Father, he heard the prayer. Even now he prays in us, for us, and is prayed to by us. He prays in us as our high priest, he prays for us as our head, he is prayed to by us as our God. When he was praying as he hung on the cross, he could see and foresee. He could see all his enemies, he could foresee that many of them would become his friends. That is why he was interceding for them all. They were raging, but he was praying. They were saying to Pilate, crucify, but he was crying out, Father, forgive. He was hanging from the cruel nails, but he did not lose his gentleness. He was asking for pardon for those from whom he was receiving such hideous treatment. Look at what David did for the very man who was raging against him, who wanted to see David crucified. David spared his life. And he tells him in verse 13, My hand shall not be against you. Centuries later, David, Jesus does this, but not for one person, for all sinners who might turn their hearts toward him. God does not give his people what they deserve. He gives us what we need, and what we need is grace. What we need is unvengeance, the same unvengeance that David displayed towards Saul and that Jesus displayed to all sinners on the cross. If we look to Christ as the ultimate Christian, as what grace embodied can actually look like, should we not also pursue a life of unvengeance? And before you say, well, we can never be perfect like Christ, God gives us this example of David. David enters the scene as a man who struggles with the desire for vengeance and the pride that is found within it. He goes through the same struggles that we do, pressure from those around us, the desire for retribution, and yet he chooses forgiveness. He chooses humility. He chooses unvengeance. David is not a perfect man, and yet here he is making one of the hardest decisions of his life. He presents us with the alternative to vengeance, and he's able to do this because his heart is turned toward the Lord, because he finds his trust in God. Consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance 
can never accomplish what humility does. If Jesus sought vengeance, the accomplishment would have wiped out mankind. Instead, he pursued the opposite, and he accomplished it on the cross. And that accomplishment saves mankind. That is the ultimate life-giving hope that we can find in unvengeance. Hope that is impossible to find in our own desire for vengeance, and impossible to find anywhere else. David lays it out in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. Vengeance is not ours to dish out. Instead, we are called to love our enemies, just as we see David doing in 1 Samuel 24, and just as Christ did throughout his life, death, and resurrection, as he took upon himself the wrath of God that we deserved. We heard Sharon read it this morning, but I want to repeat it in Matthew 5, what Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. As we might be heading out to lunch with friends today and getting ready for the week ahead, what would it look like if we were to live lives like this? To live not with the attitude that we deserve to seek vengeance on those who have done us wrong, but to live a life of loving our enemies, of being rooted in the love that Christ has for each one of us, of always seeking the hope that only exists in unvengeance. And that unvengeance is found in our belief and in our hearts that are turned toward Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to stand here at Grace Church and to worship you and to praise you, to hear your word, Lord. Let us receive it as food for our souls. Let it transform our hearts, our relationships, Lord, as we go out to the community today and the rest of this week. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us and for the humility and the grace that you exhibit in your life and in your death and in your resurrection. Lord, we praise you for giving us an alternative to vengeance through the life of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift all these things up to you. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.